Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast. As always, I'm coming to you from just outside Boston, Massachusetts. And you know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant, but not famous. And well, the not famous part is very ironic because they're all very well known and respected in their field by their peers and by the communities that they serve. But my next door neighbor probably will not recognize their name but they really are brilliant and committed to their work. And so I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and the work that they're doing. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope that some positive things will come from sharing their stories with all of you and with the universe. So today I'm super excited to have uh, Dr. Anna Velasquez-Manana, who is a medical oncologist fellow at the University of California, San Francisco, Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center. And prior to moving to the Bay Area, uh, Dr. Velasquez uh, completed her internal medicine residency at Mount Sinai Beth Israel in New York City, where she was also uh, a former chief resident. She received her master's degree in biomedical sciences at the Mayo Clinic Center for Clinical and Translational Research and her medical degree from the University of Puerto Rico School of Medicine. So I'm super excited to have you on the show, uh, Anna. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Awesome. Well, I'd like to start by um, yeah, having you tell us about your background. You are a proud native Puerto Rican, and I'd love to hear you tell us about your journey and what it was like when you were younger and sort of how you ended up uh, where you're at. Yeah, of course. I I love to say I'm a proud Puerto Rican because I think you know, Puerto Rico is a tiny, tiny island in the Caribbean that has around three and a half million people in 150 miles of um, wide. And we are extremely proud people of our roots. Um, I think partially it's an effect of colonialism because we had were first discovered and invaded by Spaniards, of course, and then we have been a colony of the U.S. and in a strange kind of agreement um, since. So there's a lot of um, pride on on knowledge of who you are, but for me that wasn't necessarily always there. Um, My mom is from Spain and my dad is Puerto Rican and they both met in Spain. Um, And I was born in Puerto Rico and raised there. um, But during all my childhood, I was always the Spanish girl. um, Because I spoke a little bit funny. I had a a different accent. I watched TV that wasn't what everybody else watched. And I ate, you know, food that was not really classical Puerto Rican food. Um, And I would say that was true until probably mid high school, college in which there was more of this connection with what being Puerto Rican means and finding your space um, in as somebody who had two different identities that built into one or two different backgrounds. Um, so that was always, you know, fun. And I think part of the, of the perspectives of that I bring into being somebody who grew having two different cultures blend and merge into one, two very Hispanic and Latino, but quite different um, themselves. 
Yeah. So, and were you always uh, interested in, in uh, science when you were like, in, when, as a young person? Yes, yes. I knew that I wanted to be a doctor, according to my parents, since I was like three years old. So <laughs> wow. both my parents are, are physicians. Um, they're both primary care doctors in Puerto Rico. Um, and, you know, the healthcare system um, back home is quite different. And it's primarily based in private practices, not not similar to here with big, larger healthcare systems or institutions. Um, so my parents work in a smaller town on the west side of the island where we're from called Cabo Rojo. And they are very, your classical community physicians. So we would go to them all and people would stop them every five minutes to talk to them about their medical problems or their family or thank them for, you know, caring for their grandmother. And that would happen everywhere that we went, restaurants, Walmart, you name it. Um, so I, I always grew up in admiration of what that meant and what that relationship was with their patients. Um, when I was little, they were in residency and they were in training. So they were working all day um, in, you know, they had a lot of night calls. They would be on night float and come in the morning and try to still play with me and do breakfast and take me to daycare while they were, you know, falling asleep and super tired. Um, but at the same time, well, many people would later ask me like, oh, they were really, you know, they were busy. Did you feel that they were absent? Not really, because they were always engaged and invested in trying to make the most out of the time that they had with me. And then um, when I would see them and how they interacted with people and how their patients really trusted them and loved them and, and some people admired them, it was very, I opening of like, wow, this is really what a, the role of a physician is and a doctor is being having disconnections with patients. Um, so I always grew up thinking, I want to do that. And I want to be like that and be able to have those relationships with people that I can help and, and serve to a certain way. Um, and apparently that translated into doing, you know, transplants of heads of Barbies when I was a kid and always saying that I wanted to be a physician. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Did you, uh, did you think that you would follow the path of your parents and end up as a primary care physician in Puerto Rico? Um, not really. I think that I, not really. I think that I saw their work as really important and admirable, but at the same time, they, they were extremely, I think, busy. And I saw it as something that was very hard to do. Um, so I always thought of how can you take those skills and become a specialist? And I knew that I wanted to be an internist and do, treat adults. I did not want to be a surgeon or a pediatrician, um, but I always debated on whether I was going to be an oncologist or a gastroenterologist or some other type of subspecialty that would be able to give me more of a, of a niche on, on trying to focus my efforts. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it sounds like when your parents, when you mentioned your parents, like being, you know, stopped at a Walmart for <laughs> medical advice, I can totally see how, you know, they, they must've been just so, so busy and just being tugged in so many different directions, but it's, it's admirable that they, that you felt like they, they didn't, um, 
neglect spending time with you and that you always felt that you had enough quality time. So your parents sound like amazing people. Um, now you said you had a, you mentioned, you know, that, uh, that you had a real sense of not fitting in, uh, being a little bit different, both in Puerto Rico, but also after you came to the United States. So can you, can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, you know, I think even from, even from before that, um, and Puerto Rico felt like this girl's from Spain and her family's from Spain. It didn't help also that my grandparents raised me and lived with us and helped during that time. And they are from Galicia, which is Northern Spain. So they didn't really speak Spanish either. They spoke Gallego, which is a mixture with Portuguese. So people in Puerto Rico would think they spoke French and they were like, we don't understand you. Um, and then when I would go with them to Spain, Similarly, in Spain, I was too dark skin and people would call me Morena and everybody would ask, where are you from? And when I would say Puerto Rico, they would be like, what? Where is that? So it was always, you know, Ricky Martin living La Vida Loca, where that's where he's from, you know, the Caribbean. We're from this, the island of Ricky Martin. Um, so there was always this it, in the back of, of my mind, this experience of, you know, you're di there's difference in color, people notice how you speak. And when I came to the United States for um, residency, particularly that was amplified. Um, and I think it was related to having a lot of diversity of, you know, in New York City, there's people from all sorts of backgrounds. There's people from all ethnicities, from all races. Um, and, you you kind of have to find where is your niche and which with which people do you feel more connected with and how to establish relationships. Um, and there's a very large Puerto Rican and Latino community for which I think people make a lot of assumptions of everybody fits the same mold and everybody um, you know does the same things. And it's not necessarily that that's the case. So we. In my residency, I found, I tried to like find community and we, I was lucky that I was in a program in which there was a lot of other Latino um, fellows and trainees and even faculty. So there was this sense of community and shared experiences, um, despite being somebody who, you know, trained in Puerto Rico for medical school, which here is relatively uncommon. Um, um, and, and had a, a different path than many of the other um, Latinos who were there. Coming to California now, with, I've been here now for four years, um, it's been also very eye-opening on that sense because even though there is a very large proportion, for example, of Latinos, we are extremely a diverse group. So people here primarily from Central America and there's probably a handful of people from Puerto Rico that I know. And culturally all of that, um, adds on to differences in food and music and how we speak um, and that sense of belonging and connecting with the community. Yeah. Well, you, that's an interesting point you raise about the assumptions that people make that you're from Puerto Rico, so everybody's exactly the same and they're not. And there's diversity within uh, that community, which I, I learned this last night. I was talking with um, a pitch navigate who is an Asian American and he was explaining the same thing that some people, sometimes people make assumptions, but he said, you know, this is, you have East Asian and you've got, you know, Thailand and Vietnam and, and on and on. So 
I think those are important things to for people to be aware of, right? I think both in in how you train and how you maybe how you treat patients, or it just even how how we all how we all interact with each other and how we interact with these communities. So, um, when you were in your medical and you're finishing your medical training, but when you're in your medical training as a as a woman as a, as a Latina woman, did did you face any particular barriers or challenges, you know, along the way. Cause sometimes I hear that, that, that people particularly come from, um, you know, South America, Central America, Puerto Rico. Uh, can you, any of that, um, that you want to share with us? Yeah, of course. You know, I think it's, there's a couple of things and it's, and it's, I think it's multifactorial. Um, you know, I think that there is a difference in the way in which, um, for example, my training and my education um, being in Puerto Rico is compared to those people who are being able to train here. Um, inherently, there are a lot of differences in the opportunities that you've had along the way, um, in the types of exposure to research, to mentors that you actually get. And all of those things are really important when you're trying to build a career path in medicine. Um, is having, you know, mentors who know how to mentor you, who can give you opportunities to come on into a project who can teach you how to present a research poster, how to, you know, the language that you should be using during an oral presentation. And a lot of that, it's not really the focus of how training is in Latin America, in Puerto Rico, and in other countries. It is very clinically focused. So once I came to the United States and I, you know, during college, went to multiple like summer internship programs, focused on research, did the same during medical school. And I really didn't know why. I, I think that part of me was always very interested in, in science and trying to be inquisitive and finding ways in which I could advance in an academic career and not continue the classical model of being in a community private practice like in Puerto Rico was. Um, but I didn't truly understand at that point, I think the big differences on the training and, and capacity building and skills that I had coming in to those that people here had who were able to train at major universities in the United States. Um, and I was lucky that I always had mentors that were open to teaching me a lot of those skills. Um, but it became very apparent as I moved along and got into, you know, residency and now fellowship that there was still a difference. A dif there's always a difference in opportunity and a difference in what you were able to do in your life. Um, and I think for, for women of color, for Latinas, we always tend to Set to think that I shouldn't, I don't know if I should do that. I don't feel that I'm prepared. There's this barrier of having a huge imposter syndrome, which limits and you have it in the, in the back of your mind all the time. Uh, I'm, you know, I didn't train at X Ivy League school. I'm not good enough for this, or I don't fit here. I shouldn't be here. Who am I to raise my voice to ask X or Y question? And all of those things can be quite limiting and actually can really 
harm you along the way in terms of creating fear, in terms of creating, bringing down your your self-confidence and limiting what you're able to do or not. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't know the answer or solution to it. It's something that I struggle with still every day. And I think it's amplified by that factor of my background is not necessarily the same. My education was not the same to begin with. I've tried to overcome it in so many different ways, but you still have to, you still feel this constant pressure of proving yourself that you deserve where you are or that you're good enough to be here and get to the next, to the next step. Um, yeah, I've heard that from, from multiple people that I've talked with uh, on my show about imposter syndrome. So it, but it, in terms of mentors, now I, I told you earlier that, that I met with, met up with um, Dr. Narjas uh, Duma um, a couple of days ago, and I know of your connection. So, so can you uh, tell us about the relationship that you have with her? Yeah, of course. I mean, Dr. Duma is amazing. She is, she's a force of nature is what I call her. I don't think that there's <laughs> anything that she can do. Um, she is a great mentor and a great friend to me. Um, we met pre-COVID, um, I want to say in, in ASCO 2019, I think, um, in which I had seen a lot of her through Twitter, her work, um, read many of her papers and had um, reached out by email and by Twitter saying, hello, I am the only Latina in my whole division of oncology. I feel very lonely. Would you meet me? Because I don't know any other Latinas in cancer care. Um, and she was of course, let's set time to meet. Um, and we, and we texted and found each other at, at Asco and McCormick place. Um, and it was fascinating because as I was walking towards her in the hallway, which there's thousands of people, um, she's there and she says, that's Ana Velasquez mañana. And I was like, yes. And she's like, come here and give me a hug and opens her arms. And this is that thing of, of also the Latino culture, you know, and, and the not fitting in is we are huge huggers. We kiss people on the cheek every time when you say hi, even if I've met you three times and you're an acquaintance, like that's normal behavior and normal. Um, but in the United States, that's not. So that interaction was just very welcoming in terms of, you know, I don't have to give you an awkward hug or a semi handshake in which I don't know if you're hugging me or giving me a handshake, um, but it was this clear, you know, my um, arms open, I am here for you and instant just connection. Um, and since then, I think we've, you know, we've shared many things, many projects, many goals. Um, I was just staying at her apartment last weekend and had a lovely time. And I think, you know, she's a wonderful physician, mentor, and friend. That's awesome. She is, she is a force of nature. I'll agree with that. <laughs> I wanted to ask you uh, if you had a personal connection to lung cancer or how did you decide that lung cancer would be a focus of your work? Yeah, I don't have a personal connection to lung cancer. Um, my family has a very strong history of cancer, unfortunately, but primarily in GI and prostate. I, you know, we've had, um, unfortunately, I think since I was eight years old was when the first very close family member of mine was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And we've 
since then lost many people um, to it, including my grandmother had gastric cancer too. Um, so that is something that always was very present and very present on my path is, is oncology, is cancer, has been interested in cancer research and finding opportunities. And that led me always in anything that I do, whether it was GI, like gastroenterology focused research when I thought I wanted to be a gastroenterologist was in colonic carcinoma and colon cancer. When it was, when I wanted to be a dermatologist, it was in melanoma. When I wanted to be a neurologist, I studied neuropathy in platinum, in patients who received <laughs> platinum for lung cancer. So there was always this layer of cancer is involved in everything. Um, and it was very clear, I think, during residency that oncology is what I wanted to do. But I always thought that I wanted to be a breast oncologist because I wanted to do this disparities work. I cared about gender equity. And that's where all the lay, you know, all the work has been done or the advocacy was present. And it just, you know, it's it's big and it's and it's out there and it's very present. But when I came to fellowship since very, very early on, I, my first clinic was at the San Francisco VA. And I had a very complex panel of patients who had, a, I would say around a third had lung cancer. And there was just so many things that were fascinating in terms of being a physician and being able not just to care for, you know, the cancer treatment perspective, but there's so many medical needs that were necessary. There's so many symptoms. There was so much complexity on a psychosocial standpoint of supportive needs, of lack of resources. Um, and my mentor at the time and in clinic who's still one of my mentors, Dr. Wang, and she's the division chief there, just was an amazing human being and she is and an amazing physician. And she's also a thoracic oncologist and was always, you know, she took time to really teach me through the process, hold my hand during hard times or bad times when your patients are not doing well and think about people as a whole. Um, and that really changed my perspective on this disease is extremely complicated, causes you know so many symptoms. The patients have so many needs and there's so little resource and support um, that I became super passionate and interested on it in seeing how can we integrate what we know as clinicians, what we're finding on the science to actually making it more patient-centered, to actually being able to address and help symptoms as a whole. And how can we make it not just be in the cancer centers, but in the community, in the county hospitals, in the veteran system, and to so many people that have lung cancer and don't have the resources that they need to be able to, you know, advocate for their own health. Well, we're, we're glad to have you in the lung cancer community. So mm -hmm. that's awesome. Um, and now you, I know you're passionate about diversity and inclusion. And you just mentioned it a little bit. Can you, can you tell us more about that passion and, and, and uh, you know, your feelings about that? Yeah, of course. You know, I, I think that there's so much beauty on, on having, diverse group of people who bring so many different perspectives. You know, everybody has their own lived experiences and that's by what you live your life. That's what guides your decision-making. That's what guides 
who you interact with. And if we are only having the same group of people be the ones that are making all the decisions, that are guiding the research questions, that are guiding how healthcare functions and works, then we are only tailoring to one specific group. Um, and I, I have, I see in my clinical practice how I have patients who, you know, speak. Cantonese, who speak Mandarin, who speak Spanish, and they have literally no resources that are available for them. It's very hard for me to be able to find something as, you know, as easy as how does chemotherapy with radiation work in a language that they can't understand. Um, so one of my, I think, main areas of focus and, and reasons why I care so much about diversity is is being able to really provide resources to everyone that are similar in access. And I think that comes from not just creating, you know, resources for patients um, in different languages or in different, um, with different ethnicities represented, but being able to engage them in, in healthcare and how do you design studies, being able to have them tell their stories because otherwise, other people who are living with cancer or may not feel as empowered, may not know that there's a community, um, may feel lonely and by themselves. And also having them connect with, you know, their doctors, their research teams. We are a minorities in medicine are extremely minority, minoritized, um, particularly between Pacific Islanders and Native Hawaiians, Latinos, um, African-Americans, we are a, a very small proportion of the healthcare workforce and particularly in oncology and, field, and the fields. And it's not rare for many of us to be the only one at the institution in which we are without having mentors who look like ourselves, without having um, peers that look like ourselves. And that creates a burden in certain degree of you should be the advocate for diversity or the lead for diversity on everything, which is not the case. Um, but also creates this sense of, at least for me, how do you connect and give back to the community while at the same time being able to actually do everything that you're interested on? And I think that has to come from diversifying our workforce. It can't really lay on the four people that are present in one institution who are minorities to carry the burden of how do we end inequities. We have to be able to say, does our institution look the same way than our community does? Um, so our community feels welcome and feels connected and is able to say, yeah, you know, my kid can become a doctor that works at UCSF or that works at X university or institution. Um, so I'm, a lot of my efforts are, I think, on advocacy more than anything, on trying to bring resources to, to try to create awareness of how important investing on people early in their career and in high school students that will, that can come become the future, you know, doctors, researchers, nurses, whatever you name it. And in being able to show them that we are here um, and that we, if we were able to do it, so they can. That's, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I think I just heard recently that the number of medical oncologists who are African-American is like 2% and the percentage of uh, Latina um, medical oncologist is like 6% or something like that. I mean, it's, 
And I, I totally get it. I totally hear what you're saying. And I think what you're doing is so important. And that leads me to the next thing I'd like to, to mention. You've mentioned uh, Dr. Duma earlier, and you're part of the Duma Lab. And when I first heard about the Duma Lab, I was... I was thinking, you know, traditional lab, right? It's like a lab at a, at a specific location and there's 10 people working in there and they have, you know, they have, you know, the beakers and the machines and all that. And, and um, then I heard that, that, that the, all you guys call yourself the social justice league. And when I heard that, I just started cracking up because I thought that was just awesome. Because I've knowing Dr. Duma, it was like the perfect, the perfect, um, the perfect name. So I'd love to, to hear uh, from you, you know, a little bit more about, about the Duma lab and your, and your role there. Cause it's just, it's, you, you guys are doing amazing work. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely not a pipetting beaker kind of <laughs> lab, um, but more of a group of, I think, very passionate people who share goals related to advancing health equity. And that comes from patient-facing efforts that are in disparities in clinical trial recruitment to a lot of work in gender equity and how can we, um, you know, highlight differences on the experiences of women in medicine um, and how can we highlight differences of minorities in medicine who like, who lack mentorship, um, who lack opportunities and how can we combine all of those efforts to really impact healthcare and outcomes? And I think that that is the key is we have to stop thinking of, you know, workforce diversity as something that is isolated or different from patient care, because by building that you're actually improving outcomes and you're actually improving patient centered um, work. So, the Duma Lab, by being you know a social justice league and focusing on equity, is able to merge all of those things. And we have people from very different backgrounds. From we have people from different countries. They're not in the United States. We have people from everywhere around the nation who have different areas of expertise and interests. It's not based on one disease in particular. There's of course, because Dr. Duma is a thoracic oncologist, there's many of us who are very interested in lung cancer. Um, but for example, you know, Dr. Bernabe is a gastrointestinal is interested in gastrointestinal malignancies. Enrique Soto, who's from Mexico, is part of our members also, and he is a primarily breast oncologist and geriatric oncologist. So everybody brings very different perspectives, and it's built on collaborating and on providing mentorship for people who are earlier on um, so they can gain expertise and skills on how to do research um, and on how to you know, use their research to advance topics and things that they really care about. Well, it's really important work. And Dr. Duma is a force of nature, but all of you together combined are a force of nature the way I see it. So I'm really impressed and really grateful for that kind of work because I do believe that what you guys stand for is super important. And uh, we, need, we need more of that, please, I say. Um, you also... Um, Anna, you lead efforts, uh, quality efforts at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, the city's largest safety net hospital um, in San Francisco. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah, of course. Um, 
You know, I work both at UCSF um, main campus and at Zuckerberg and um, San Francisco general, it's, it's a very special and beautiful place because it serves the people who have the most needs of the city. Um, it's a public hospital and similar to every other public hospital in the country, there are certain you know, barriers to being able to give care to patients. A large proportion of our patients are uninsured. They are immigrants. They may not speak English. I very often, I think I speak English probably when less than 15% of my patients. Um, they may not have access to food every day on their on their tables or to a roof. And all of those things impact significantly how you're able to get care and more when it's surrounding cancer care. We can ask people to get, you know, chemotherapy and have horrendous nausea and diarrhea if they don't have access to a bathroom. Those are things that seem obvious, but are not. Um, you, I cannot treat somebody who needs to work to feed themselves and their family back in Mexico with the most aggressive chemo that would make him really fatigued and be in bed for four days after treatment. Somebody who has resources can do that, but you have to really have all of those conversations with patients and get to know them to be able to tailor the treatments. And as a institution that may not have all of the resources that larger academic centers do, we many times face barriers with workflows that are not necessarily the most streamlined or the most efficient, while everybody is just trying to do their best to serve the patients and to come up with solutions. Um, so we applied for this grant from ASCO um, that is a training grant through their quality training program for three years, and we're able to be you know, chosen. And um, through that grant that is specifically focused on oncology practices that serve underserved communities, whether it's rural or in urban areas like ourselves, we have been able to come up with different projects related to, for example, oral chemotherapy and how to expedite um, teaching and education and tailor it to what our patients actually need and make sure that we're doing it appropriately and to make sure that we're getting medications to them in a um, faster, not taking weeks or <laughs> or even months to actually get it for them. Um, we're focusing now on projects that are related to how often our patients get labs and how can we implement systems that get them reminders while they're in treatment um, with oral drugs to monitor for toxicity. Um, we've been working on how to um, expedite and increase the amount of patients with lung cancer who are getting molecular testing and who are getting then broad molecular testing, not just piecemeal like EGFR, NKRAS, or um, test. And all of those things are, we've been doing it using quality improvement methods, bringing stakeholders together to try to identify barriers and come up with solutions that are easy and related to processes that are able to directly improve outcomes and improve, you know, impact the care that patients are getting. That's awesome. That's an, again, I can tell from listening to you that the uh, social justice is at the core of what you, of what you stand for. So I, I really appreciate that. It's, uh, you're doing amazing work. It's just so, it's just such a pleasure to listen to you uh, talk about it because you care so much about 
about humans and it's it's really pretty cool. Um, I wanted to ask you um, about the White Ribbon Project and uh, get, you know, I always like to ask clinicians, you know, what they think of it, because as a, as a lung cancer survivor myself, uh, I'm just drawn to it um, and I'm a huge fan. So um, I'd love to hear what you think of the White Ribbon Project. Of course. I mean, I think it's, I think it's an amazing effort. I think that we need to empower as much as possible as we can patients to be able to be advocates for their community. And I think that the lung cancer community, unfortunately, in the past has been historically stigmatized dramatically, and that still happens. And there's a lot of inequities on resources that are available, awareness that is available, um, you know, fundraising that is available to drive research and having something like the long, um, that like the White Ribbon Project that really creates community, creates awareness, allows pa patients and advocates to speak up, to bring up their lived experiences. You are the experts of these disease. You should be guiding the questions that we're asking. It's not the clinicians. We don't, we see it every day, but we actually have never lifted. So we don't understand um, what your experiences are. I think it's it's vital, it's key. We need more of it. And I love it. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And I, I promise you, I'll find a way to get you a ribbon. So you got to have yes. one. Um, yes. The, the last thing I always ask my guests is, and not to put you on the spot, but um, outside of work, if you can tell us something about you um, that you're passionate about outside of work. Hmm. That I'm passionate about outside of work. Okay. Let's see. I um <laughs> I love my I I love my dogs. I have There you go. two tiny dogs and I am very much a dog person. <laughs> um, a crazy dog lady probably. Um and even though I don't have children so my dogs are my children. Um so I'm quite passionate about trying to I think you know, ensuring that that organizations that care about animals are are supported, and that is something that is one of my interests outside of the day to day life. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so now I, I'll think of you as the crazy dog, the crazy dog lady. Yes, yes, <laughs> okay. I am the crazy dog lady. Definitely. Okay, my, my, my wife is a crazy dog lady too. We have a golden retriever. And we had a cockapoo that passed away recently and she wants to, she'd have like 10 dogs. So she keeps hitting me up like, let's go. When we're going to get the next dog. I'm like, I, well, we have a dog. She's like, well, well, you know, we could have 10. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so she's I'm even more her, of a crazy. I'm on her team. I had <laughs> the most I've had at the same time is seven. Oh my gosh. Um, when I, I mean, when I lived in Puerto Rico, which of course made it a lot easier because our ha house had a backyard. So you could have dogs in an apartment. I don't think that's feasible. <laughs> um, but yes, I'm, you know, dogs, chickens, cats, rabbits, lizards. Okay. You're birds, crazy. Fish, you're the... you name it. I've had it. <laughs> you're crazy <laughs> animal lady. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All about it. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, <laughs> and it was really a pleasure to talk to you, and and I'm I'm so grateful for the work that you do, and I'm appreciative of the of the of the support that you bring to uh, the lung cancer community, and wish you such good luck in the next chapter as you move on from your fellowship to 
uh, your practice. And um, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was great and lovely. 